You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I am joined by the experts. This is a roundtable on spondyloarthritis. I'm going to ask everybody to introduce themselves. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Alexis. Hi, I'm Alexis Ogdi. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Chris. Christopher Richland, Professor of Medicine at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. And Dr. Sher. Jose Sher, uh, New York University, uh, New York City, uh, rheumatologist. All right, so the meeting is over and done with. These folks are still standing. It's amazing. Um, if you only shadowed them this week, you'd be astounded by the amount of work that they put in. Um, so I'm most thankful that you're here and wanting to share your experiences or your what you thought were good from the meeting as far as content. Let's start with Alexis. Give us something that you thought was worth remembering. Well, I think one of the new things that we saw this meeting compared to other meetings was the introduction of brepacitinib. So this is a phase two study comparing brepacitinib, which is a tick 2 jack one inhibitor um, compared to placebo in a phase two study. So dose ranging. And they were examining uh, whether or not this was a worthwhile therapy in PSA. And it looks like it was doing okay from an ACR 20 perspective. Um, from a safety perspective, actually looks similar to Jack one but no, no significant dose effect. That was the one difference from our other Jack ones that we've seen. So do you think that um, this is different than a Jack inhibitor? You know, current Jack inhibitors knock out more than one Jack. They like to say that they're doing one and hitting tick and Jack together, does this make it really unique? Well, it could be unique. So I think one of the things that we're trying to figure out is where would this be placed? So we have a tick two coming for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, and it appears that it works pretty well. Safety looks pretty good. We have a Jack one coming for psoriatic arthritis already available for RA, um, also coming for atopic dermatitis. So, you know, I think we're, we still have those other two on the horizon yet. So this is a kind of behind them. So I guess it'll be interesting to see where that falls into place once it's finally available. All right. Um, uh, anybody else have any feelings about tick two as a target in Spondy or PSA? Is it going to be in you there? Know, it makes sense from the point of view of the model and the model is that tick two can is involved in the IL-23 pathway. And one would say that that seems to be of confirmed clinically, at least in psoriasis, where the oral sitnib is pretty effective for psoriasis. I'm not overwhelmed by its efficacy in psoriatic arthritis, though, nor am I overwhelmed with the, the data that uh, Alexis just mentioned. So I'm not sure about the arthritis uh, at this point. Okay. And you were there, Jack, on the FDA recap of the year. You know, I think that's the elephant in the room. Are they going to consider it a Jack? And if so... Do they get the label? And if they do, do they have a place for any rheumatic condition? Yeah. Um, remains to be seen. The senior director saying, uh, where is that going to fall? And he said, well, it's in the family. And he, he didn't, of course, he, he didn't actually truly answer the question, but it, clearly he's going to be considering, the FDA is going to be considering that under the same umbrella as all the jacks when it comes to safety. And that's another hurdle for them to overcome in drug development. Jack, the re recently 
a topical jack for psoriasis was released. It, ha it has, uh, you know, bl it has black boxes for the topical. So I think that also says a lot, right? Yeah. Interesting that they would give the black, bo the, the box warnings to the topical, but not put that on ruxolotinib and the other jacks that are out there for maybe other indications. Yet the mechanisms are still the same. FDA's rationale on that, of course, was that um, these other, Barry, UPA, TOFA, all have the same indications, chronic inflammation, same, you know, target audience. That's why they get that slap with that. I don't know. It seems arbitrary to me. Chris, why don't you uh, give us your next one? Yeah, so two of the major challenges in axial spinal arthritis are delay in diagnosis and trying to get a handle on how to read the plain radiographs and MRIs for the presence of, in the case of x-ray sclerosis, narrowing, et cetera, and in the case of MRIs, what the heck is bone marrow edema and how can we use that to diagnose this disease? Uh, and there were a number of abstracts dealing with the radiographic and MRI that were somewhat interesting, and they were using uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to uh, have a group of experts get together, three in one case, to uh, interpret these films. And then from the variables that they use, they built these models using artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, they showed that these were pretty effective at uh, recreating what these uh, expert readers have done. And they did this, uh, it was these were different abstracts, I'm com combining them. One, uh, one was with plain radiographs, and that was done by Dennis Badovny and his group. And then there were a couple that looked at MRI uh, using these strategies. Um, I think this is encouraging because we know that in many hospitals, the radiologists are not used to reading these kinds of films and they're not particularly good at it. And so I'm thinking we all talked among our group that maybe there'll be like a centralized place that these get sent to and you get a reading score and it comes back to you and it's, it's pretty, it may be fairly uh, accurate and valid. The second is, um, and I'm going to have, I need Alexis to help me with this. And that was, uh, trying to decrease the time to, uh, to diagnosis of XPA. And in the UK, they have a large database, database, excuse me, which they used a technique to try and develop algorithms that would allow more effective referral to rheumatologists for patients with uh, axial SPA. Alexis, you want to just tell them quickly? I, I'm not good at yeah. this one. <laughs> Yeah, so they took uh, in CPRD, which is basically an epic across the UK, taking a bunch of practices from the UK. They looked at patients with AXPA and patients who were matched on other characteristics. And then they looked at what was happening in the years right before AXPA to see if there were some codes that kept coming up that would make, potentially predict the patient who's likely to develop the AXPA. So then they used machine learning to train these algorithms to identify differences between the two groups. And the idea is that they've had this algorithm that works well now. Now they want to kind of put this into a prospective manner and say, even if it's just a cohort study, if you start with all patients, can this predict who's going to go on to develop AXPA or who may even just need to see a rheumatologist because they may have AXPA or might have similar symptoms. So it's um, something that's been going on in, in terms of PSA as well. I think these things have been mainly in this case control design where you're selecting people with and without the diagnosis and looking back in time. But now we really need to take this forward in time to see how well do they actually work in the real world. And do we have results or we're still at the stage of 
now testing it. Developing. Yeah, we're still at the stage of developing algorithms in a case control type design. It's brilliant, you know, because um, most rheumatologists are surprised when they find out that we're not the ones diagnosing uh, ankylosing spondylitis and, and spondyloarthritis, that they're being diagnosed incidentally or, or wrongly or God knows a million different ways. And we get involved, which means we get the patient way too late. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, yeah. Actually, we presented an abstract this time looking at that. And we were you know, so surprised to find that there's so many of our AXPA patients are in primary care. They're not, there's more, there's like 10 times as many patients that with AXPA in primary care compared to rheumatology. You know, there, there have been some reports in, in some centers where they have developed a scheme for re earlier referral and they've shown pretty good numbers, you know, getting away from that seven to nine years or that to, to make a diagnosis and done it much better. But um, this sort of takes it out of the hands of, of intelligence and goodwill and start, you know, using um, AI to earmark people who should be referred, should be tested, that sort of thing. Really brilliant. I like that, Chris. Thanks. Uh, Jose, do you have one? I have one. Actually, I was listening to Alexis and Chris. Um, you know, we try and diagnose earlier and diagnose better. And yet what strikes me today, and part of it is data from Alexis's group, is up to 40-some-odd percent of our patients with spondyloarthritis are on opiates. Mm -hmm. uh, that's striking to me. How are we connecting those dots? We're going to try and make the diagnosis earlier. We're going to try and make them better. We have significant improvements in terms of uh, mechanism of action, new medications. We're talking TIC2 now. You know, we're all happy and, and excited. And then we see data on 40% of people on opiates. It is astonishing to me that we're there, even after the scandals that are emerging or have emerged. You know, who's prescribing those? Why are we prescribing those? And what do we do about it? So isn't that two issues? One... Um, pain and pain was a big subject at this meeting, right? Uh, in spa, especially. And two, as you say, Jose, who's making the diagnosis? Alexis, you had a, an abstract on that. Um, you want to share? Yeah, we so we examined these patients in primary care as well within our health systems. We've actually done it with three health systems. We're going to put it together if, um, for to look across different health systems. But in this particular abstract, we just looked within Penn and we said. Let's take all patients with AXPA who've been seen between 2017 and 2020. So this is not even like 10 years ago. This is like now. And look at who's prescribed, who's seeing them on a regular basis and who's prescribing therapies for them and what therapies are they prescribing. So we looked at CSD MARDs, biologic therapies, opiates and non-opiate pain medications. And uh, it, there's huge discrepancies in the types of therapies that patients are getting, depending on who is prescribing the therapies. So primary care providers are prescribing a lot of opiates still for AXPA patients, but they're also prescribing more non-opiate pain medications, suggesting they're, they're kind of dealing with the brunt of the pain aspects. Um, and then we obviously prescribe a lot more biologic therapies than the, the primary care doctors would. But it, like Jose said, it really speaks to how far we have to go, because even though we're getting diagnosed with these patients, they're clearly not getting to us and getting the appropriate therapies. But also that reverse piece, which is how do you deal with the pain? Opiates we know are the wrong answer for the way to deal with pain. They're also easy in some sense. It's getting harder all the time. Um, but maybe we need to, to rethink how we think about this disease and separating the pain component too, and how do we manage that pain component? I guess the other question though, Alexis, is what percentage of those patients that were not being treated, that were being treated with opiates were not getting 
biologics that should have been getting those, right? I mean, if you've yeah. got a patient who's on max biologics and they're having a horrible pain, that's different than a patient who's getting opiates and is not and has X spa and is not getting treated for the inflammation. And that's probably more common, obviously, in the primary care world, right? We hope. Or NSAIDs, yeah. for that matter. Or NSAIDs, right. right? I mean, we don't need to go to the biologic. NSAIDs yeah. is a perfectly good treatment for X spa. Right, right. Uh, right. Going to the dentist, getting a tooth pulled out and getting, you know, seven thousand mm-hmm. grams yeah. of opiates. So no need. Yeah. Advil is and- just good. Exactly. That's a good question. I'd be a prof and excuse me, Dr. Kosh. Are there any new insights on pain, though, coming from the meeting? There's a lot of pain and it affects your outcomes, uh, but I think that's as far as we've gotten. I don't think mm. we've done a good job of addressing how to deal with the pain. There was that cannabinoid study, um, but that didn't really provide an answer for how to, yeah. it didn't seem to do much, at least. It was as good as placebo. <laughs> you know, in years past and even this year, we see a lot on comorbidities, but I saw more this year. I, maybe it was just the, the, the Twitter feed on on work outcomes. That seemed, was that was that novel or is that informative? It's not now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good enough. Um, Jose, you did this the study about um you know, microbiome studies in monozygotic twins. Oh, yeah. Tell the audience about that? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, and some of, uh, I think Christopher's contributed a pair. It's very hard to find, as you may know, uh, these Corton twins for psoriatic disease. The score, wait, so, let me say the Scorton meaning um, the one. One affected, one unaffected. Right. Right. Okay. And so, you know, it takes time. We have up to 16 right now. So what we're doing, we're doing a variety. It's a unique cohort, 16 pairs, right? So we started off with the microarrays, the ECR1. We're seeing a lot of differences right now, uh, particularly in the skin, in the non-lesional skin of people with psoriatic disease. They have a lack of diversity that's very similar to the plaque psoriasis. Does that make sense? A non-lesional skin on someone with psoriatic disease, it's similar, microbially speaking, uh, than that of someone, or the same plaque of the same patient. Uh, and then if you look at the normal skin, it's completely, you know, uh, robust and healthy. Uh, same or something similar happens in the gut microbiome. You know, there's that decrease of diversity, what we call dysbiosis, and some of the uh, metagenomics, some of the genes that these microbes intrinsically have are helpful for maintenance of health or lower or even absent in the affected twins. So there's a lot to discuss there. There's been a lot of work on how you reconstitute that. You know, is it like a microbiome approach? Is it a probiotic approach? Is it a dietary approach? Alexis has a grant uh, and a study ongoing to compare two different uh, dietary approaches in psoriatic disease. So, you know, it's in the making and uh, hopefully this is informative. Um, Jose, since you're, you know, um, bowel deep in this problem, um, do you think at this point you could say that these microbiome um, unique profiles that we've found, you think they're more important in disease pathogenesis, disease activity, or drug responsiveness, as you've shown? Yeah, we're doing that that. now. Yeah, I think it makes a lot. I mean, certainly it's true for pathogenesis when you do animal models, right? That's established and proven over and over again. Does that uh, remain true in humans? We have not seen that much direct evidence that that's the case. When it comes to 
uh, its relationship with the drugs that we prescribe. You know, methotrexate, sulfasalazine has been the case forever, right? But now we're seeing evidence in not only methotrexate, which we've been doing work on, but also biologic therapies. This is data mostly from the cancer literature and from the IVD literature showing that certain baseline microbiome predicts the response to future therapy. And so I think that's where we're heading. Um, the other one, you know, we need a lot of mechanism uh, in the humans because one thing is to suck mice and just say, you know, these, these microbes elevate TH17 cells or whatever, TNF. But to prove it in humans will be difficult. You know, um, another uh, endeavors that are coming up will be helpful to try and understand and, and get, get us some answers there. Well, since I have three experts here in spondylitis, can I ask a question? Um, I'm a little confused about IL-23 and spondylitis. Supposedly, it doesn't work. But yet there's this Gaselka map showing that it works in psoriatic spondylitis. And then you got the JAK inhibitors showing that they work in spondylitis patients, ankylosing spondylitis. So is 23 out of the picture or is this, I, what, what, what am I to learn from all this? So Jack, I think you have, we have to be careful about over-interpreting the results that we're seeing in peripheral arthritis trials in regards to axial outcomes. So we saw the discover one and two uh, sort of post hoc analyses. And we heard at this meeting um, from Xenophon Baraliakos, who did a post hoc analysis of the um, in psoriatic arthritis of the select trials that were used to treat peripheral PSA with UPA using a similar approach, although they didn't have any imaging data, they just looked at PROs. And it, we've had a lot of discussions about it, the three of us and, and, and our group with Eric and Laura uh, as well. And uh, it, it's really hard to say that BASDI or even ASDAS is telling you something specifically about the axial skeleton in a, a very strongly peripheral arthritis group. I think from a biologic point of view, there's pretty strong evidence that IL-23 may not be involved in ongoing axial inflammation, but may be instrumental in starting the whole process, getting it going underway. And that there are many different cells that are present in the spine and the antheses that can release IL-17 independent of IL-23 and mainly of ENA type. Um, so I, I, I'm, I think the jury's out to tell you the truth. You have to do the imaging study like they did maximize with uh, secukinumab, which I know they're going to do. I think they are. And then you'll really have a sense of whether or not blocking IL-23 really has axial uh, legs in psoriatic arthritis, uh, axial disease. And you guys may, I'm sure you have other thoughts, but. I think that nicely summarizes my thoughts too. I mean, I think the, the critical thing is to not rely on the BAS diet as a measure of axial disease in PSA because it's so conflated with the peripheral disease. So um, I, I think those studies are nice, but they're hypothesis generating and need to be followed up with imaging. So um, can we end on some optimism other than Reposetinib may be coming on board and are there, are, there, are there other reports that we can be optimistic about? Biomarkers, um, profiling, predictive variables. Anybody have any, any suggestions from the meeting? We're working hard. I don't know. It's part of the meeting that's been suggested throughout the meeting. And that is the question of why are we doing monotherapy? Why is it that we're still in that era of either one cytokine or pathway or the other? Where is the space for, you know, 
one molecular pathway that addresses the spine, let's say, and one other molecular pathways, uh, pathway that addresses the skin domain. That may be the future. Uh, there are studies in the making that are not part of this uh, meeting, but probably the next one. A, a clinical interjection here that's, that's, that may be helpful to the audience. Whenever I had to de deal with, you know, prior authorizations and I got patients on two biologics, which I have done, the greatest thing is to say, well, you know, one drug used to kinemab is for this and the other drug, it, it, you know, the TNF inhibitor is for that because I'm treating two different diseases. And sometimes that in fact works. Chris, you were going to say. No, I, I totally agree with what Jose said. There was one abstract that did not receive a lot of attention. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not uh, axial spot is a disease of innate immunity or of the acquired immune system. Uh, are, is it like RA where there's an autoantigen? And so far, that's not been something we've been able to show. But there was an abstract from Matt Brown's group at Australia where they took a look at patients uh, that are HLA-B27, and they were able to isolate CD8 cells, which you know are tied to uh, axial spa, that what we call clonally restricted, meaning that they, they express T-cell receptors that are specific for one antigen. And they had many of these that were of the same clone from patients that only were HLA-B27 positive. And so these data are really exciting and, and using new technologies, you may be able to identify these clonotypes that are reacting to a specific antigen. And indeed it's possible that axial spa is an antigen driven disease. And, and they also found this in patients with reactive arthritis. So we're back to the microbiome again as a driver of possibly an autoimmune response. And I think that's really exciting and, and really following that closely. Do you think the, the such patients with a colony, a colony restricted response are more likely to have better targeted therapy? I think that there might be ways to address the antigen driving component of it, right? So if it is microbiome, if it is infection, et cetera, you might be able to intervene earlier. Uh, obviously that's pie in the sky, but it's, it, it's something that um, is very important. And I, I know you're covering RA and there's really cool work in that and in terms of the microbiome as well. So I think we're getting closer and closer to the source. Let's put it that way. Great. Alexis, you have one more you want to end on or are you happy? I, I'm happy. Um, I, I guess I'll just might slightly add to Chris's um, comments in which uh, Chrissy Kuhn also had some nice studies looking at T-cell, uh, sorry, trafficking of cells. And that would kind of add to the story that Chris just kind of discussed. So um, some other kind of things that are developing that have been developing over the last several meetings, actually. So kind of interesting to see where that might. Excellent. All right, folks, um, you're still standing. I'm amazed. Um, I'm most thankful for your insights and teachings. We'll see you at the next ACR face-to-face -face in Philadelphia. Thanks, Jack. Thanks from now. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Nice to see you.